This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. As I mentioned in a prior episode, I am doing a bit of experimentation with the podcast feed right now, doing different types of shows, different types of uh, things with, with the release, and I'm really happy to share this conversation I had just last night with Justin Gentry and Sarah Heath, who are co-hosts of a new show on IMG called Rev Covery, which is all about pastors and other spiritual leaders leaving their positions and venturing out into the world beyond um, the pastoral profession. It's a really interesting conversation, and then we spend the second half talking about the Jerry Falwell Jr. piece that was published in Vanity Fair, as well as the piece that was published in Christianity Today by Russell Moore, and really trying to tease out what both of those pieces were trying to say about Jerry Falwell Jr.'s particular story. I'm really thankful for Justin and Sarah's um, insights into what it's like to first leave pastoral positions and then second their insights as former pastors on the way this very well-known Christian leader is being examined now after their downfall, so to speak. You can find a link to the Rev Covery show in the show notes. That link will go to irreverent.fm, and you can also follow the show anywhere you listen to podcasts on whichever podcast platform or app that you prefer. This show, Exvangelical, is a production of the Post Evangelical Post, which is my newsletter and my direct form of support. If you want to support my work, you can do so at four, six, or eight dollars a month and get ad-free podcast feeds as well as a few other benefits. You can find out more about that at postevangelicalpost.com. You can follow me on Twitter at brchastain and on Instagram and TikTok at brchastain underscore. If you have any comments for the show, you can email me at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com and you can also leave a message uh, via a voicemail feature on exvangelicalpodcast.com. I am trying out a new sort of editing workflow that involves a new software that does things like removing filler words and some other stuff. So if you do notice anything in regards to the uh, in regards to the audio of this particular episode, please let me know because this was an episode that we recorded just last night and I am releasing very quickly. All right, everybody, let's get into it. 
everybody, and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week the two hosts of the new IMG podcast, Rev Covery, Justin Gentry and Sarah Heath. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's good to talk to both of you. Obviously, since we're both members, we're all members of the IMG group, we've talked before, but I've actually not <laughs> talked to Justin on air before. And Sarah, I have had you on a previous episode with another show that you do on the network. So uh, very excited to talk to both of you about this new project that you've started. But before we do that, let I'd, I'd love to, for the listener, just get a little bit of bio for, for both of you. Justin, let's start with you. Actually, we ended up going to the same college, but didn't really cross paths. But let's hear a little bit about about your story, and let's tailor it a little bit towards what the topic of your podcast is, which yep. is leaving pastoring as a profession. Yeah, so I was a evangelical pastor for about 15 years. I trained at, initially got my schooling at mm. uh, the same school that uh, Blake went to. And as I've, I've said on our podcast, it is, it's a unique job. And it, it's honestly, it's a very fun job at times. There are things about it that are, I think, very good being there for people's, the high points and low points of people's lives and being able to help people that may be underserved by, because the lack of finances or whatever, like having a church community can be a very good thing. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of pain and difficulty that comes with that, particularly in evangelical spaces. So as my faith began to evolve and to change and shift and become more inclusive, I learned very quickly that when you become a pastor, they expect you to not change at all. Once you sign on the dotted line and say, I'm an evangelical pastor, they just want you to don't change. You're not allowed to you know, change the script and we're paying you to provide a service to us. And provide a script to us and reassure us, I think. So as I began to change, it just became a point where we I had to make a break from ministry. And it was, in my case, uh, Sarah will share her story. In my case, it was very painful and tragic for me. It was a lot of, I was immediately thrown into the corporate world. That transitioned from being a pastor where I essentially set my own hours. I worked very odd hours because I was a youth pastor actually at the time. Mm-hmm. And going immediately into nine to five, TPS reports, all that stuff. <laughs> and it was very difficult for me. And mm-hmm. so part of our podcast is naming that difficulty. I think ministry as a profession is very sticky in the sense that even if you want to leave, your ability to leave and not have to start completely from scratch is it's very hard. So there's a mm-hmm. big barrier to leaving. And then there's just a lot of language and stuff you just don't pick up. You feel like you're a child again in a lot of ways. So we want to make that process a little smoother. We want to name that being a pastor is a unique thing and also leaving is a unique thing. As much as we can build community around helping people do ministry well if they want to stay in, but also build a bridge to get out, it helps avoid some of the pitfalls that we ran into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Sarah, what about what about you as far as your more recent exit from ministry as a full-time profession? Yeah, so we actually was in a meeting of Irreverent Media where we started realizing that there are some unique things that happen when you leave ministry. And I I had a different situation than Justin where it was I was able to craft the ending and I was trying to avoid um yeah, harm not just for myself but also for the congregation I was serving. I knew that I was burned out. I knew that my faith had shifted in ways that it made it really difficult to figure out um, how to be present 
to the people around me in a way that felt authentic. And if I wasn't uh, anything, I was authentic in ministry. And I've, I was lucky enough to serve a congregation, and I was a church restart. So I had restarted a community that had dwindled down to 17 to 27, and we grew quite quickly within five years, quickly for Methodism, because it has to be methodical. So we grew. <laughs> but I myself was exhausted in my faith. I hadn't shifted in a way that I didn't feel like I could be completely authentic, but I definitely felt drained spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And so we were talking about this and realized when the new person got announced for my community, there was such a, a moment of grief for me that doesn't make sense for people who have passed on a CEO position. Or And when I was walking away, I knew that I couldn't stay and I wasn't sure where I was headed to next, but I knew that there would be implications that a lot of people wouldn't understand. And so... Mm. We joked around, and as you two know about me, I love a pun. I, I should have really, like, dad jokes are like a weird spiritual gift of mine. And so <laughs> when we came up with Rev Covery, I was like, I think this is a thing. We named it, so now we got to claim it. So we uh, yeah. talk a lot about it, and I think it fits nicely within a space where someone today actually was having dinner with was like, hey, I listened to your podcast. I was like, you in no way are in ministry. Like, you're in the film industry. And he was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I just love hearing two people who the way that, that it ended was so different, but the way that you guys are helping other people work through their own grief of vocational change, even for folks outside of ministry, is like, I realized you started it with this very niche mindset, he said, but I think you're going to be surprised how much it hits people for beyond that. And then his other statement was like, it has me thinking about something I'd never thought about before, which is that when you left our, because he was part of our church community, him and his wife, and they were it affected us in a way that your doctor retiring doesn't affect you or there's mm. just this, what does this mean? And so we re recognize all the nuances of it and we're hoping to help people figure out like what the heck is LinkedIn? The joke Justin and I made is like when you've left a job where one of your job description was discipleship maker, like you're either going to have to <laughs> be a cult leader or yeah. like a tech startup leader or you're going to have to like, it doesn't make sense for people who don't play like World of Warcraft. It was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was just this, okay, we've got to, help people become civilians. And I use that language, obviously, jokingly, but there is this weird, who am I now? And so mm -hmm. that's we've gotten such a big response. Like, it's been lovely and humbling. And like my direct messages on Instagram are just full of people saying, A, they always start with, I've never reached out to anyone I don't know before. And then B, I, I didn't know I was even feeling half the things you guys described. So hopefully mm -hmm. we can be mm -hmm. partners in helping people journey so they don't do things like the person we're going to discuss did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because there are, there's other ways to get out and they're not great. Yeah. 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 I want to circle back to a couple of things that both of you mentioned. You both use language like faith shifting and as a pastor, as a spiritual leader, you are, even though evangelicalism in particular, and even... Whether, depending on who you talk to, I think Methodists are either considered evangelical or not. The fact that they're splitting over LGBTQ affirmation, I think, makes them evangelical. Yeah, that's pretty evangelical <laughs> right there. Yeah, like having our own split, thinking anyone cares. People yeah. do care, obviously. Obviously, yeah. people care and care deeply and should. But more, I think this is an adventure in missing the point, friends. <laughs> but sorry for that, that aside. <laughs> <laughs> You both use this language of faith shifting, and even though evangelicals like to think of themselves as being a faith group that doesn't require some sort of person of authority between them and God, like it's understood in, say, Catholicism, there is right. still a symbolic sort of mm -hmm. role that the head pastor, the lead pastor takes on, and that 
that symbol, as you mentioned, Justin, you're not supposed to, it's not supposed to change. It's supposed to be, yeah. it's supposed to be like you give this message and it doesn't really matter how you feel given that even this historical moment we're in this, the great resignation is also happening in the ranks of pastoral ranks and other clerical workers. How does that play out this, as this sense of this deep sense of calling that led you to follow this profession yeah. when that changes and you're not really, and you're in a position of leadership where you're not expected to change your mind. Mm-hmm. What does that do for you internally? I think it yeah. creates a false self. And I think sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. And mm-hmm. even though I was lucky and so I was 16 years in full-time ministry and that's where you guys are supposed to say, oh my gosh, you don't look like it. But I was in six <laughs> years of full-time ministry, five as a solo lead pastor. And before that, I'd done five where I was a campus lead pastor. And so I... I didn't recognize how much my life would change once I left. Honestly, uh, I was a lead youth and college pastor. And then the next thing I knew, I was a lead pastor um, of a campus. And I didn't realize how much, because I like to think of myself as not someone who's about titles or like the thing is, I don't make people call me by the right reverend, except for you guys. I I don't use those like fancy Mm -hmm. titles or Mm -hmm. I let people call me pastor when I am their pastor. They don't have to call me. That's not something I require because I really wanted to be with the people. But what I didn't realize is the whole time I was trying to be with and of and amongst, I never recognized uh, the pedestal I accidentally stood on. And that both had benefits that I wasn't aware of, but it also had a dehumanization that I wasn't ready for. And so part of that is there were days when you recognize that the way you said hi to someone will be something that they will discuss for the rest of their day. Now, mind Mm -hmm. you, you might have just been in the midst of a really busy moment and not properly greeted, and then someone's going to say, well, Pastor Sarah's really full of herself today, or whatever it might be. And you start to notice those moments enough if you're an empathetic person or if you're aware. So imagine if it's something big, as big as I'm being tasked with being the keeper of the knowledge, and I'm not sure that this knowledge is exactly what is both correct, quote unquote, right? Or is helpful. And so you've got this message within a a person of faith that you're trying to share with people this good news and doesn't feel really good sometimes. And it also, there are moments when you're like, I'm working this stuff out and I need to be human in it. I need to be honest in it. I need to figure out. And so you can find yourself unintentionally faking it Mm. because you can't, it, it would be, I haven't never done it, even though I'm all about authenticity. I've never stood on a stage and been like, yeah, I'm not really sure what any of this is, if not a market multi-level marketing thing. Like, <laughs> I think, and I mean, and that's not true in every moment. But you're just people both want you to be authentic and want you to be the authentic thing they need you to be. So that's not necessarily mm-hmm. yourself. And if you throw in that, I think a lot of us that serve in ministry, um, we are. If you use the Enneagram language, we're Enneagram threes or we're fives or we're, we're people who who know how to put on a different persona uh, to code switch, to be like something, and we don't mean to do it, but we know that your ability to feel comfortable in a space makes it necessary for me maybe to put my own feelings or even my own spirituality on the back burner Mm -hmm. and act like we're all in this together when maybe Mm -hmm. I'm not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were many times I felt caught between 
what I'm feeling and what I feel like maybe I need to express, or maybe this is what, if you want to use more kind of evangelical language, what God has put on my heart <laughs> mm-hmm. versus what they expect me to say. And what they, and, and not even what they expect me to say, because that almost puts a nefarious twist on it. Like what they need me to say. What do they need from me in this moment? When someone has someone, loses a loved one and they come to me and say, I'm worried they're not in heaven. At times, my most authentic response would be like, yeah, I don't Is know. Is there either. a heaven? <laughs> but you get caught in that moment of, okay, I really have to put myself to the side here and, and be a professional religious person, professional Christian. We just recorded an episode about that. I'm not sure when it'll debut, but it'll be coming soon. And when can I be authentic? And I think for a lot of pastors, you really start to lose sight as to which is the mask and which is reality. And I'm not even going to say the mask is bad at all times, because sometimes that's just the professional role you're in. You need to do that. Mm -hmm. But because it's spirituality and it is so personal, you really, you lose sight of who you are. My experience of leaving, I thought when I left, I was sensing that I'm following Jesus out the door was the way I left. Mm. But once I was out and I didn't have to uphold the brand, I didn't have to believe on behalf of other people anymore. A lot of things very quickly started to fall away because then I I started to get in touch with who I actually was. And Mm -hmm. I would never would have experienced that had I not walked away, which, and so I'm grateful for that. But it was also, is was a very like uh, jarring experience to be like, wow, I was really putting on a face here and I had no idea. I don't think I ever lied in the sense of I actively deceived, unlike the person we're gonna talk about today. I don't feel it was ever an active deception but it was just, it's subtle. Yeah. You code switch. You just, you realize this is the role I'm in. And then before long, you just really, you really lose yourself if you're not very careful and very intentional about not doing that. For me, Mm. there were also pieces where that was not only the messaging I was getting from the pews, but that was the messaging I was getting from bosses and mentors. I went through a very difficult time early on in my ministry as a lead. And now put in that I'm a lead female who looks young. So I'm a lead female who looks young, who is actually, at the time I was younger, (laughs) a lead female who looks young. And I was brought in and I was about 30 years old and I was getting married. And so that's a great story. We love that story, don't we? And then he left and it, it was a difficult time. And I was trying my best, like we're talking like would cry all the way down to the church and then have to go to a pharmacy to put makeup on because I'd cried it all off. And I would have to then go in and give these people some good news. And and, and the, the reality was I was doing a pretty good job of it. But I got called in by one of my mentors who said, hey, people know you're sad. So nobody wants to follow a sad leader. So if you can figure out ways to um, cover that up a little bit more, that would be great mm-hmm. kind of thing. So if you're hearing patriarchy, correct, people know that you're like you're overfeeling your your whatever it might be. I already was like amped for that messaging. Like I was ready to hear you got to suck it up, kid, because I was in so much grief that I was just trying to wade my way. And this person was kind and had my what they hoped was my success in mind. But the messaging I heard was who you are doesn't matter. What you're going through doesn't matter. And so I learned to be performative in a way that I think was needed because had I got on stage and just said, my boyfriend broke up, that would not have been helpful. And perhaps maybe it would, but it it would not have been helpful. And I always say you don't preach 
from, and I think I heard this from like a Rob Bell thing, and I probably heard it somewhere else as well. Like you never preach from your scabs, you preach from your scars. And I think that's great and wonderful, but it it's hard to do that in real time. And yeah, there's just, the other thing I would say that I think is something that I've realized over the last couple of years. And I think this is important because again, it's going to go in. I'm, we're leading it. We're doing the giantest lead in into this conversation. <laughs> but I was thinking about this is there aren't many professions where your friends have an opinion about how you do it. So as an example, my friend that I was having dinner with tonight, I assume that he is the best in his industry. I just assume because he's my friend, right? I assume that my friends are really good lawyers, doctors, whatever they might be, nurses, I assume. There were not many spaces I was going into where people didn't have an opinion about how I did my job. And that opinion was based on how I performed the week before. So imagine if you're Mm. constantly going in to a situation where not only are people within your organization, like deciding whether or not they're going to show up the next week. So imagine if you're like office presentation you have to give, like the whole office is, are we coming in on Monday? Let's hear what she has to say. You know what I mean? Like that's a reality. (laughs) So of course you create these two images of yourself. Now you're going into, you got into this because you had this really deep feeling that this is what the divine had set out for you. And Mm -hmm. when that goes sideways, not only does that affect you know, your own spirituality, but it's, did I read the signs wrong? What was it? And so Mm -hmm. I think there's just, I just want to be really careful for people to hear. We're not saying that we intentionally created two people or even that in the moment, if you are doing this right now, that you are two people. And I feel like I was really given, because I I never acted like that again after that. After I left that position, I worked for other people and it was a different situation. I just said, I can't show up as anything other than myself. And I have to admit, I had a wonderful congregation that I served last that I I did try to show up really authentically, but that led to me leaving because showing up authentically meant for me to say, I can't be here anymore. Everything that both of you are describing sounds like reasonable sort of defense mechanisms or coping mechanisms to the sort of situation that pastors find themselves in. As you mentioned, Sarah, like if since you're being judged on your performance based on small interactions or when you think about it, pastors are very much like the original content creators. Like they, yeah, they have, you have a content calendar every that, yep. that follows. How many you, likes. Yep. You've got to have your content posted and ready every week to preach or teach or whatever it might be. And people are going to respond to that. They might You're basically saying you. the same thing over and over again in different ways. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and people will take it how they take it. Um mm-hmm. There was, I remember I I did a sermon and I felt like it was really good. And there was a guy that came up afterwards and he said, I really liked how you talked about how God is with us in our struggles. And that's a fine sentiment, but not once in that entire sermon did I talk about how God was with us in our struggles. (laughs) So it was like, like, he he got something out of it. So that's a win. I would fly on the wall for that just reaction. But it was just like, uh uh-huh. And I'm like, I'm even like filtering in the back of my head because sometimes I do go off script in a sermon, but I'm like, nope, I didn't say, nope. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. So yeah, you you don't know what, you have no idea what is going to be received. And just like Sarah said, you may make an offhanded comment that is completely misinterpreted. And then those people are gone out of your life for good. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. And then you awkwardly see him in a restaurant with more people from the church and you're like, hi. And there's like an awkward, hi. Like it's no. literally, I joke that 
working in church ministry is seeing ex-boyfriends constantly. That's that, that feeling you feel. Well, you guys are heterosexual males. But when you see that girlfriend that it didn't work yeah. out with, but like you never Ooh. really closed it off. And so then you see them in a restaurant or whatever, and you're like, how are you? You look good. That's what it feels like whenever you run into people who no longer go to your church for something mm-hmm. that you have no idea about. So you're just like... Hey, how's it been? I've meant to call. You always feel you always feel like you're catching people. Like right? even people that go to your church, like whenever you say hi to them, like they feel like they're they've been caught. <laughs> oh. like, like, uh, we both go to McDonald's sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. Yeah. yeah. You just feel like you're catching people all the time. <laughs> and I th- it's really encouraging that um that this is you guys are are having this both, uh, you guys, you both are having uh, these conversations in public and adding it to the other sorts of conversations that are taking place around things like face shifts, all the things we, this whole constellation of related topics like deconstruction and whatever else, that, that this particular conversation is taking place because the pastors and other church leaders are just as susceptible to the same sort of struggles and doubts as anybody else. But as you've both detailed so well, there's a lot more consequence to it because it's tied to your livelihood and your sense Mm -hmm. of calling. And I'll say this because I think this is important as two people who I think have tried really hard to be able to be in the deconstructionist space, if you will, whatever we're calling it, the ex-evangelical space, in ways that are helpful and not harmful. And so when you do that, oftentimes people are very open around you. The other thing that I think happens is that a lot of people are very angry and have every right to be very angry with the pastors that hurt them or harm them and the systems that hurt them and harm them. But I think they also have to understand is this huge movement is happening. There are a bunch of well-intentioned people who are going through the same thing as you and are hearing that they're terrible, not only from the people they used to be the pastor for the bosses and things like that, they're also hearing it from the people that are going through the same thing as them. So what we really wanted to do is make a space that isn't in any way saying, I understand that you might hear people go, oh, don't, what are you whining about? Life is a pa- getting to make your own schedule. I think it's sometimes that we don't, when we are in pain, we don't always recognize that other people are in pain. The reason I say that is there's so many forums or stuff that I'll just see people talk about pastors are this or pastors are that. And it's like this moment where we're like, but not all are. And it's not appropriate for us to all say, but not all are. But we're hoping to like create a little bit of a recovery room, if you will, for people to be able to say, man, when so many people came out with that thing about pastors, and I know maybe they weren't talking about me, but it hit and it hurt because I tried really hard. I think that's that's another reason that we've done it, recognizing that you can't always talk about your pain within deconstructionist spaces and be allowed to have that pain. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I, that that sort of segues into what the, the last question that I have before we shift topics to talk about something else, which is how, when it comes to your own relationships, how these things change you you've talked about the stresses that being a person of 
spiritual authority, whether you were able to perceive it or not at the time, in in the, in your roles as pastors, limited the way that you could be present or express yourself. How have you both experienced what it's like on the other side of that? Like the other what, side of the stained glass mm-hmm. window is what we say. I don't know yeah. why we came up with that saying <laughs> yeah. one day, and it's, we've just it, rolled with it. it. Just, yeah. I don't know Sometimes, what's wrong with me. Why do I have to brand everything? <laughs> yeah, I, we're all we're both pretty bad at dad jokes and, and branding, hey, I, and also like <laughs> this is we why have, we're friends though. We have, over, <laughs> we have both have over a decade of experience of doing three points in a poem for everything, <laughs> <laughs> and an, an acronym, I... and an, and people eating it up. That's the thing. I see a, a three point sermon that's like a PR or four points so on P-R-A-Y or whatever. And I laugh at it now, but I also go, oh yeah, that was pretty good. Work. Can I, before I answer your question, tell you guys my worst and yet best one? Please do. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to do the most creative, and I always do weird things at Christmas. So I want to do this very creative worship series about, and this is going to be like very trauma activating for some people, all the worship series. Brace yourselves. I'm just going to do a worship series. It's as bad as my deconstructionist joke that I told on TikTok. Um, I wanted to do a worship series about the cool nature of Jesus's family tree that's the the people that are included in Jesus's family tree is scandalous and it doesn't make sense other than to point out that this person of Jesus however you feel about that right now had these scandalous people and and it tells the story of women and so I was like we're gonna talk about (laughs) you guys are gonna be so disappointed we're gonna talk about Jesus's ancestry I named the series 23 and he (laughs) (laughs) yes and this is why we can't have nice Nice. things (laughs) i bet you got compliments though i bet people thought that was really clever my artist did like the thing that like the 23 and me like the yes the the bulletin looked Uh, like that logo guys i and now i'll see like the local church doing like a transformer world transformer thing using the transformer i'm like they don't know they yeah. know, that's so dumb, but 23 yeah. and he had me real proud. <laughs> and look at you now. Now you're a sinfluencer. Now I'm a sinfluencer. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say on the other side, it's, it's interesting because I still work within church spaces. What I'm doing currently is I coach folks one-on-one doing, usually around their vocation, oftentimes as pastors that are either transitioning in their work um, or are actually exiting out. And so I'm still in that. And I also consult churches around making space, both literally and figuratively for themselves and, and making space for people. The communities that I've served have been very diverse and LGBTQIA inclusive and affirming. And so I'm still in those spaces in some way. So I feel like I'm not totally out, but I can tell you not being a lead pastor feels very freeing. And it's hard because I feel guilty for it. And I know I'm only six months out. Justin and I talk about, we realize sometimes when we're talking about people that we're going to interview, we're like, how many years did they serve? How long have they been out? And we <laughs> totally sound like we're yeah. a prison podcast. And maybe we are. Which is a telling metaphor. Uh, All the metaphors we use are like veterans, prisoners, <laughs> like... Like you've seen some shit. Yeah, really. yeah, like, we, you have like, definitely ooh, seen some shit. There is you've some said trauma some shit. here. Sarah's created some shit. But I think there is something to be said. Justin spoke about it earlier. It's like freedom to actually try to figure out what I want and who I am 
a little bit, not a little bit, but very disconnected from and that a, a community, and that has both blessing and curse. So, what would because you that, say? Because that 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 very well may have been what drew you to spiritual things to begin with, right? Is that the exploration? But then you have to lead, and that isn't necessarily the same thing. Oftentimes I think about that. There's a scene from a Monty Python movie that I used to watch them with my grandpa. And I I think it's the life of Brian, the guy who's confused for Jesus. And there's this moment where he's running away and this guy is confused for Jesus. And so he's like, I am not the savior. And he's running away. And they're like, only the savior would say he wasn't the savior. And then he's fine. I'm the savior. Like he's admitting he's the savior. And I think the neat thing I've found is more and more when I say, I'm not sure, but I'd love to question with you and I'd love to walk with you. And I have been given this really blessing in a weird way. And I hate to use the word blessing, but I've been given this like gift of being able to spend time really academically researching the thing that a lot of us just, you know, don't have the time to do. And I spent a solid years at a solid academic institution studying this stuff. And so when I question it, there are some differences or or maybe some nuances I can suggest to you or some cultural background or whatever it might be. And I get, I still like to play in those playgrounds, but it's nice now to not be worried that what I say will affect this person's attachment to a community. Justin, what about you? I, could you repeat the question? We had a few digressions. <laughs> sure. in yeah, there. we did. And that's, I, that's, that's, and totally it's okay. Fine. I just was like, I want was, to answer the question. <laughs> But yeah. I, what yeah. So looping back to the the original prompt, and all the di- all the digressions were great. I I totally tracked. I am fine the, with them. The original prompt was really just about how you feel about relationships that you can have and that sort of thing. And one of one of the things that motivated that question is I knew someone who was a pastor who I knew through someone who was like a religion PhD. Friend of a friend that I became friends with as well. And he had a hard and fast rule, this pastor, of if you came to his church, you couldn't be his friend, like his personal friend. Mm-hmm. That was his own personal rule, was that I'm not going to have a, that type of relationship with a parishioner. And that was just his own way of managing things personally. But, and I know that is a concern for some for some pastors. So how have you been able to navigate or change the way you have relationships with other people or even those in more in, in the closer spheres of your life. It's for me, it, there's a lot of levels to that because the, even when I left, there were still people that saw me as a spiritual authority. Like I was still their pastor, at least in mm-hmm. their heads. Yeah. And I still, I think, held on to that responsibility in a lot of ways. And while I enjoyed the freedom to experiment privately and play in the playground, like Sarah said, it is a real gift to have the level of theological training we have and to be able to play at the level we're able to play at. And it's Mm -hmm. once you leave ministry, like kind of the training wheels are off. And it's, oh, I have the freedom to really dive into this. And and this is what interested me. So I feel like that's very good. But you also realize that there are still people that think of me as an evangelical pastor. When I post something online or when I, you know, do a podcast or something and they happen to hear about it, like it's my relationships are still breaking in some ways, even five years later. 
mm-hmm. because there are people that haven't caught up with me and then they'll catch an episode of you know my other podcast that I do with Tori Williams Douglas, Go Home Bible You're Drunk, which <laughs> is therapeutic for us. Yeah. But it I think it's a rude awakening in some ways for people that I am not who they thought I was. And Mm -hmm. and I've got a lot more confident about that and a lot less, I think, that mask has really fallen away from me. But I'm still very aware, I think, of some people that I still have a pastoral responsibility to. It looks very different. But I think that's an important thing to say because, Justin, one of the things you and I have been most shocked about, so we recorded, we've got a lot of things in the bank, but is the that we still worry. So Mm -hmm. when the episode came out this week, that was about Justin, the vulnerability hangout, like hangover, both of us had a, our first episode when we just said that we're going to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. And then the, his episode coming out in a way, he said, in a weird way, it feels like I'm obviously not the drama of coming out, but it felt like you were coming out or being more Mm -hmm. open, even though you haven't been in that role for five years. And I wonder how many things there are in this world that have that sort of ghost residual. I still worry what people Mm -hmm. think. And there are people that had very significant moments with me in their life that is still connected to Jesus and Christianity and things like that. And I am still hesitant to break that for them in some ways. And to be like, I was doubting the whole time. And then the question comes up for them, like, was Justin lying when he said that to me? Did he really believe that? Is this all fake? And so I feel like I I don't want to go around making breaking points for people. (laughs) Some people need to be broken, probably. But it just there are some people that I and, and relationships that I still cherish in some ways. And it is a weird thread I think there, that's probably why a lot of pastors, when they leave ministry, they just go like, radio silence and they have no more public life. And so I think stepping into a different kind of public work or kind of an adjacent public pu- public work is it's a unique experience, at least for me. It's not something that I expected. And mm-hmm. I enjoy it, certainly. And I welcome the challenge and the kind of personal growth that comes from that and the conversations, too, because I've had a lot of very positive feedback from people that are pastors currently and former students and former people that were under my care pastorally when I was pastoring adults. So I've had good feedback, but there's also, there's still that like cringe. Is that one board member going to call me? Like, even though I don't care what they think, I would probably hang up on them if they did call me, but it's, (laughs) there's still that like, like on a residual trauma or like that ghost of a feeling of I'm still in. Am I like, it's almost like a dream. Like I wake up and I'm still a pastor. No, like, right. But it's, uh, yeah, it's a strange, it's a curious thing. I think. I think it, it was like Henry. I never know how to say his name out loud. Henry Nowen. Henry Nowen. Yeah. He wrote the book, The Wounded Healer, which is about that, of being a person that has your own wounds, but is supposed to be a healer of some sort. And to your point, Justin, I think, it's got to be a very difficult position to be in where where you change to the degree that you're now the person that's out of bounds, so to speak, maybe to someone else's eyes from this like beloved community or whatever yeah. they have in their mind of what the invisible church is or, or what have you. That's a very, that's a significant thing and that's not a light thing. And it, it's brave, good work to be <laughs> able to put those things out there. And we'll just keep having vulnerability hangovers where we call each other in the morning. <laughs> Did I say the thing? Because there's like a list of people you want to call and say, not you. 
Not you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I may have said that the church you. made me feel this way, but it wasn't because no. there are yeah. so many relationships or, or significant moments that you don't want to take from people because you don't, we've all had that moment when someone that really mattered to us, again, in the conversation we're about to have, something, someone that really mattered to a bunch of people. And when there's a downfall or where they change their opinion about something, you're left in the wake going, was any of it real? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because he, yeah, because even though that sentiment that even if though something's temporary doesn't mean it's not real or significant. That like the significance of the sort of blessed assurance that a lot of people associate with faith is one of the more significant things and it is a hard thing to lose or to recognize when someone else's thing relationship to that changes that you are in a relationship with. It's it's a very sort of tender type of work, but I think you have identified a conversation that that wasn't really happening in this sort of accessible way and are meeting that need, which is great. So oh, thank you. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. So hard pivot here uh, mm-hmm. to a to a related topic ish, I'd say. Really, it's about how a recent story that is in the news relates to how leaders are judged, which was something that you talked about earlier, Sarah, about the sort of judgments that people pass on those. And what I'm talking about is this recent profile that happened. In Vanity Fair about Jerry Falwell Jr. and then a and also this sort of subsequent story that was published an article that was published in response to it by Russell Moore in Christianity Today. To sum up the Vanity Fair article, it it really is this profile of Jerry Falwell who, depending on who whose story you believe was either in a non monogamous non monogamous relationship with his along with his wife and another man or that it was an affair on the part of his wife and that led the scandal around that led to him being ousted and some other things that he did led to him being ousted as the president of liberty university which has an infamous student student social policy called the liberty way which is a very stringent policy on their behavior and he did not live up to this liberty way and Um, you get fined money for not following it Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he says in the article, one of the, the pull quotes is, because of my last name, people think I'm a religious person, but I'm not. My goal was to make them realize I was not my dad. I, I want to start actually there before <laughs> oh, we man. even... Uh, there is like a therapy doctorate that could be right in that statement there. <laughs> not my dad! Yeah. You're not my real dad. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so... Let's start with what we learn um, from this article, and it's a long article. It goes yeah, into uh, goes into a lot of detail 
about Jerry Falwell and his wife Becky and all this other stuff. Just within the context of that, what is your read on the way that Falwell Jr. is trying to position himself as a participant in, but not a, in a, a believer of this type of evangelical Christianity and whether it matters given his role and the power that he has. Whether it matters. Yeah. Like I, it's, I am of so many different minds. I think my initial take is almost, I don't believe you. Like when he says, it gives the air of, I, I was never religious. I didn't really care. He even talks about how people would say, you know, dovetail into the Russell Moore article all about, he was a hypocrite because he drank even the, the Liberty way is that you can't drink. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, there's nothing that says the president has to hold to the Liberty way. And so it, it, it seems I to me almost. I never signed the document. <laughs> yeah, I never signed that I wasn't going to drink. Uh, it you reminds guys thought me. I, yeah, you guys thought I wasn't going to drink? Yeah, it reminds me of that the guy that this like a uh, uh, opportunistic app developer who jumped on the Wordle craze and created a s- scammy iOS app that charged like yeah. thirty bucks a week or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, so it, and I I don't know the man, but it some of it felt like I am backfilling the story to make me look better or even subconsciously I, I talked about this on go home Bobby. you're drunk a little bit like i think sometimes when you have a big break in in life not just faith but you retroactively can say i didn't really ever believe that or i didn't really want to do that and, and sometimes that can be therapeutic I, uh, and i don't know if he's doing that but it is the red is like how do you not believe this and if you didn't believe this, if that's genuinely true, you are a deeply pathological person. Like mm-hmm. almost like you are saying this in a way that because you think this makes you look better, but it actually makes you look so much more skeezy and scammy. And yeah, that was it. There's, but there's also this undercurrent too of almost sympathy for him in the sense of he had that last name and there were so many assumptions yeah. made about who he was that he just fell into it and i'm not saying he's a have good character or someone who deserves sympathy but i have sympathy for that journey of having expectations placed on you and then once you get them you realize you didn't want them and now you don't know what to do with them i can have sympathy for that aspect of it i think there, there can be sympathy and accountability yes yeah um, i have to go hand in hand and I, if you really didn't like it, bro, you shouldn't have taken the job. <laughs> like, yeah. like and you're a lawyer. <laughs> you could have worked somewhere else. And that, that, is, that is one point that's brought up is that he, he wasn't in any capacity holding a, like a clergy-oriented position. But the thing yeah. about, the thing we all know from experience of living in evangelical institutions is that they can often have ecclesial overtones. It carries with it like a religious authority. And he also had actionable political power. And to me, like that is also, to me, complicates the sort of narrative that he's pushing in this, is that he he used that (laughs) to the fullest extent. He was an early backer of Trump in the evangelical circles. The only person that predated him was Robert Jeffrey. And so he clearly knew what, knew what he was doing. And 
the ways in which he talks about not being religious. And even he talks about his dad being wanting to impress his wife, like yeah. Jerry Sr. wanting to impress his wife by appearing conservative. But he wasn't really like that because he was friends with Larry Flint. Then and he was drinking all of our NyQuil. That was like yeah. the weirdest moment yeah. of like, my dad's a cool dad. He's not like other dads. He was drinking NyQuil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he- it, yeah. And to put all the blame on a deceased woman who cannot defend herself in, in no, any No, literally, that's like a great, that is 100% a lawyer move. Like, I'm actually a little bit proud of him. For, I know who I'll blame the dead person, the I'll dead woman. I'll blame my actually. dead mother for my. <laughs> and my dead dad. father. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm, yeah. And also, like, he has this air of I didn't really believe it or I'm not religious but then the Vanity Fair article talks about this is December 2015 he says in my opinion Donald Trump lives a life of loving and helping others as Jesus taught and when evangelicals were saying like you know, in Donald his defense could he meant Jesus we assume <laughs> yeah there were a few Jesuses in this story we you assume know, he meant Jesus the Christ so, he could like, have meant so he's, he's acting in religious authority and using religious language to get what he wants for him to say i wasn't religious well you very much used religion when it suited you and Mm. when it got you favors or i should say when you were returning a favor to michael cohen to michael cohen yes yeah so there's it just it did reek of quid pro quo and i'll help you if you help me and of course they deny all that but Mm -hmm. um, there's just some massive undertones of toxic masculinity of because mm-hmm. you're in the room you're the authority because your last name is a certain name you're and i i just want to say it it reminds me of and you're not going to be shy, it reminds me of britney spears no i'm just kidding there was a moment in britney spears <laughs> career early on where she was getting a lot of what i would say unfair critique because you know, i think she was the first since madonna person who was a little more sexualized and if you have listened to any podcast about her past she wasn't the one who chose that as an identity. That was uh, marketing people who decided she needed to be an innocent bad girl because that was what was going to sell. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> she had a moment of clarity where she said in an interview, and I'll never forget this, I never wanted to be a role model. And I remember thinking, but you still take the paycheck. Now we realize this this thing that we do, we have to be really it's interesting because like we demand something of our people in a spotlight. And we mm. were just talking for 45 minutes about how that can be really harmful to the person who's in the spotlight. But I think the difference is to recognize people who are willing to admit that they are in the spotlight. And I think he took all this and what that means. I don't want to be a role model then don't take the job at a Christian institution where you're literally telling kids that you're teaching them how to be role models. If you read through all the language, there's a great podcast on all of this called Gangster Capitalism that is a little less of a kind read of Jerry Falwell Jr. Because I think Mm -hmm. the Vanity Fair article uh, did bring about empathy in me a little bit. But I also think it ran over all those people that were incredibly harmed. I know students from the LGBTQIA community who were incredibly harmed during the Jerry Falwell years and continue to have a lot of pain around this. And so I think it's, oh, guys, I didn't mean to because 
I was being honest about who I am. No, you weren't. If, if you didn't think it was wrong, then why were you covering it up? Why did you say you were holding a glass of Coke? Why yeah. did you, like, if, if it really was something that you were proud of or didn't see as contrary to the person you were projecting, then why did you spend so much time lying about it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and even the Russell Moore article, like, goes on this apology tour for Jerry Falwell Jr. Oh, he always told us who he was. Like, no, he did not. Like he did near the end, near the very end when he was, I think, trying to consciously or not torpedo his career. Like, sure. Yeah, he did start showing you who he was. But for all those years when he was from 2007 to really 2000, maybe 18, 19, he was hot stuff and no one really questioned it. And so, yeah, this, oh, he wasn't being a hypocrite because he was always bad. It's just a... Like, why are you putting this world word salad into the world? Yeah. I, the, <laughs> Jason, I love the, the, the very narrow definition that Russell Moore posits is uh, very, it's not any sort of way in which I've seen the word hypocrite used. Yeah. He says, and he says he means it only in one sense. Russell Moore writes, when I say that Jerry Falwell is no hypocrite in only one sense, obviously he was hypocritical and among other things, allegedly engaging in behavior that blah, 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 would have led to fines or expulsions for his students. But then he's, he, I don't know, he goes on and talks about for Jesus, the congruence between the inner and the outer, the heart and the mouth, the motivations and the behavior, the public and the private, is a crucial matter of integrity before God. The warnings were needed, Jesus told us, because hypocrisy is by definition crafty and hidden. He was doing crafty and hidden things. He wasn't doing things out in the open. No one can see this. But your face is priceless right now. You're I like, have, I'm very I'm, confused and angry at I the same time. Th- I'm just befuddled by even <laughs> why. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally, I I almost launched into an old school word study when I saw oh, this. I, I might I, have. I pulled up, I was like, Hip- hypocrisy word study. I just Googled that, and it was like a very evangelical website, but I went through it. <laughs> like I made it through. Uh, but I'm totally confused by what the point of this article was. Um, I think it was to point out that we made a king out of him. That was the point, was to say, you can be shocked about Falwell. What I'm hoping, this is my nice read of it. What I'm hoping is that it says, let's not do the thing we do quite often, whereas we, we, that person is bad and we don't recognize the system that let that person get there. I'm hoping... Because it sounded like it was, who's a hypocrite? We are. Because when you point one way, you've got all the fingers pointing back. Yeah. Whatever. What you just described, Sarah, is a really good article. And I wish that article <laughs> Generous been read. That. It was such a generous <laughs> read. Yeah. Because um, I, I do think that's a good point. Like, the, if Russell Moore is trying to make that point, and if it is, it's really buried in there, that there are some systemic problems that enabled Jerry Falwell to be the way he was, and we did hero worship him. We talk about toxic masculinity or patriarchy, and typically we're talking about people like Jerry Falwell. But I also think there is kind of a patriarchy from the bottom up, where people need a savior and need a leader and or feel the need for a ruler. And so they put that on somebody. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that's a good discussion to have. And pastors feel that certainly, whether you want to be on a pedestal or not, you are. And Jerry right. Falwell Jr., sorry, bud, when you're the chancellor of a of the premier evangelical university, you're put on a pedestal. 
and you can use that one or not. And there will be people that will cover for you without even consciously knowing it because Mm -hmm. they want to protect their, their faith, their belief in this system. And so they will cover, they're covered for him for years. And it wasn't until he's posting on Instagram in ways that they can't cover for him anymore. And now it's okay. We have to do something now. It's a breaking for us now. There's such a strange, like thing that's happening too in both articles, which is they make Becky, who is Falwell's wife, oh yeah, into this very characterize or caricature of a woman who's been ignored and then goes and does a thing to get attention. And it's a very strange read. And in the end, I don't know if you guys read this, but I mean, I know you read the article, but probably didn't hit you the way it hit me. I'm actually speaking to a group of clergy and predominantly males, predominantly conservative-ish community to talk about why when we talk about the flesh and the mind is separate, so our flesh is bad, our mind is good, right? Like that sort of Gnostic, if you will, but like that dichotomy, Mm -hmm. creating that dualism and talking about flesh is bad is what led to an eating or disordered issue I had with eating. As I read this Vanity Fair article, they at the end of it are like, we should, she said she's battled depression and gained a significant amount of weight. Mm -hmm. Like, it was this very like, why are we talking about that? Weight was mentioned a couple times because her he, weight. her weight, but also his weight too. Because he, he talked about when the affair came out, he wanted to lose weight and wanted to get in shape and was taking testosterone supplements. And that's why he was so combative during that season of time. Yeah. Like it's, I, I did feel like she got thrown under the bus and she characterized mm-hmm. in a very one dimensional way. It, it's a very strange, both articles are very strange. It's almost like I want to sit down with them and say, what was your intention of, of writing this? What, what were you trying to like for the Vanity Fair article? Were you trying to humanize someone that's been dehumanized? And you Be- should highlight Becky. You're right. Or highlight the pool boy who literally, yeah. if we call him the pool boy one more time, that's a man. Yeah. He has one Carlo. Yeah. It's a strange, it, it is a very strange conversation. And I think I was hoping, I think you guys caught me. I was hoping that the article was trying to have us look at our own ability to listen to someone that doesn't have the credentials to be listened to. And I don't mean credentials like academic credentials. I mean, Jer- nothing in Jerry F- Falwell Jr.'s past other than the fact that he had that name and that meant something to that group of people should have meant that he became the chancellor of a university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he helped He helped turn it around financially by means I don't know whether even those are ethical because of the ways in which th- there's been some reporting about the ways in which Liberty runs their online college. Yeah, that's what um, gangster capitalism is about. Yeah. So, so even from that aspect, there's a question of what if we're using a moral standard, and that's what I think is the most confusing thing to me, is what the standards are that, like, is was the Vanity Fair article about, to your point, Sarah, humanizing someone and and giving, giving them a chance to tell their side of a story after being this 
person that is now persona non grata. There would have been there would have been an evangelical path toward redemption if it if the sex scandal didn't have the details it did. Like the details because there's conflicting stories about whether everybody was willing participants, like all of these salacious things that make him not able to ingratiate himself back into that system. But then at the same time, I'm just not sure what the point of the more article was and what sort of moral standard Russell Moore is trying to posit either for Jerry Falwell Jr. to be judged against or or measured against or the people that are in the pews. And what it comes down to is like Falwell Jr. says he's not a religious person, which sure, that's fine. People are not religious. I'm fine with that. But Moore says to to him, meaning Falwell Jr., Trump was moral because he had created jobs and made payroll. Unlike some other Trump evangelical supporters with whom I disagreed, but whose positions were reasonable under and understandable, Falwell didn't try to measure the business leaders, blah, 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 with some other objective like judicial nominations. Instead, he often mimics such attacks right along with the cartoonish and bullying tone of them. I'm not, to me, the moral that I get from both these stories together is that Donald Trump is Jerry Falwell Jr.'s true Lord and Savior because he saved him from having to pretend to be a good person. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's the quote right there. And that's the thing that I, the faces I'm making are because I am sick and tired of he's just a bad boy and boys will be boys. Yep. And Mm -hmm. that's what I felt was the underlying, that's the thing I get so sick about Trump supporters saying, either, either you're an evangelical Christian who believes that there are these moral right things and, or you think that Trump is okay. Because if you say that this is how you want someone to behave and then this person behaves in this way, it's confusing as hell for the rest of us to figure out what is your mm-hmm. litmus test. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if someone like Jerry Falwell Jr. and who who openly mocks people, and that's before he was honest about his daddy issues, or yeah. <laughs> someone like Trump who shows very few of the the markers of the way of Jesus, if that is your if that is your marker. And then we just say, boys will be boys. They're just like, you're just being a bad boy. You're just yeah. being a bad boy. And it's like yeah. that what is happening? That's the confusing part for me that I don't understand. Like you're fundamentalist, but only about certain things. Like it's very confusing. But then your students have to behave in a certain way. And then this whole little thing where Jerry Fowles, yeah, I don't know. The other thing he was like, yeah, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church. And I think the reason a lot of people don't want to become Christians is because of the way that institutions and church are. You ran an effing institution, you giant asshat. About yourself. Like, I don't understand what the hell you're doing. Yeah, if only I the had most... the power and finances to to <laughs> yes. make real change in this world. Instead, yes. I'll find a pool boy. Like it's the most confusing yeah. thing. Yeah, that that was... is like, how did we get here? On what planet? What is the face of the person interviewing him? Yeah, that what? was the most unhinged <laughs> statement I think I had read, and that whole article was like, 
Yeah, where was the follow-up question? Like that? Yeah, excuse me. <laughs> so. Can you respond to running an institution? I don't know yeah. what to do. Or did they just leave the farm at the end of the story because they're like, this is crazy town, and yeah. I'm going to take this exercise bike that's left in the hallway that somehow made it into the article yeah. Yeah. and ride my way into the sunset. They were, they were really focused on that exercise bike. <laughs> that took um, half a paragraph, friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I, and I think it, and honestly, maybe the person that wrote the article had a word count to hit and they didn't have good <laughs> material from the fall else. And there was a deadline and they just had to like, oh, let's just talk about the exercise bike. Um, <laughs> maybe there was so much crazy. Yeah. Yeah, they're I, like, I, I, they're, just, they're just like us. Those rich, uh, disgraced evangelicals are just like us. They have to yeah. move old just... exercise equipment around too. I think yeah. that's the, I get the article again that was written for Christianity Today. It also left, let Jerry Falwell Jr. off. off. Mm -hmm. It's not his yeah. fault. It's our fault. Look what we made daddy do. And it just continues the cycle. And I get nervous about, and I think even in the article, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I read it a couple times, but I feel like there was just this sense he's a human just like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. But we put no. him on a yeah, platform. I, he put himself mm -hmm. on that platform, I would argue, and then decided that he was going to pick a president. So if we could just say he just messed up a little Christian college that, and and you could say well, Christian, you know, the kids that were getting in there knew what they were getting into in some ways, da, da, da. that would be one thing. But if you have done any reading about, he knew what he was doing when he backed Trump. Yeah. Because he screwed with Ted Cruz about backing him for a long time and was like, hey, I might back you. What are you going to offer me? Like the weirdest, no Christian university leader should have the power to be a kingmaker. That's just a weird, mm -hmm. it like literally is biblically wrong. <laughs> like the Bible talks about this. And you, let me just let you know, you're not the hero, dude. And I find this just very fascinating that we continue the narrative of this idea that let's not, yeah, go mm -hmm. get therapy. That's fair. It is fair to say that he's a human that has gone through a lot. But at what point can we say, geez, we need to uh, own up to something needs to be done about the fact that somebody knew along the way, but he was making the money. So they didn't do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, too, you say, like, you can't be a kingmaker because the Bible teaches against that, and I totally agree, but... Well, I didn't mean to say that. I was just saying more the, like, a whole idea of no person should be the kingmaker. Yeah, no person should be, and we live in a country where there's supposed to be a separation of church and state, but his dad was saying, and this is in the article, too, like, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to prevent Christians from running their own country. So that is the that's what he grew up with, and I think that is very much the um, mindset of the Jerry Falwell Christian, for lack of a better term. And for him to be the one that picks the president, I think they view that almost as the Samuel anointing David. Mm. This is oh. the, you know this is okay. the holy man okay, anointing our next yes. president. Yes. And this is right and good as God intended because they they feel like we should have a Christian nation. The chair um, of the history department at our college that I, I was a history major taught 
that the ideal form of government's government is theocracy, direct theocracy. So that's not. I'm I'm sorry. I I did have to interject that one thing. Yeah. I'm sorry, J- Justin. Continue. Yeah. So this is the mindset that we're dealing with. So. I, I do think that Jerry Falwell can say I, I was acting in my role as a religious leader in trying to anoint the king. And, mm-hmm. and then and, I would say, Jerry, I thought you said you weren't a religious leader. Exactly. Like that was the, <laughs> that's the thing where it's on the one side, he can defend his religious actions and on the other side, he's, I'm not a religious person. And so you're left with not knowing really who this person is, which is fine. Um, I don't think they, but they yeah. might not. They might genuinely not. And I Um, see that same equivocation in Russell Moore's article, too. He calls it cultural Christianity. I'm sorry, but just call it evangelical evangelicalism. Like Mm -hmm. this, this does not represent the sort of cultural Christianity that you can find in other denominations or like cultural Christianity is too broad a term, like. And I do love that Methodists have this set. So we go to conference every year and every year we write these letters to Congress and I'm like, that'll be like anti-gun or all these sort of things. And I'm just imagining the person getting the letter going, oh, the Methodists think this, we should get right on that. You know, like, <laughs> I feel like there's like, oh. <laughs> they have sent a sternly worded letter. That's what yeah, and the evangelicals show up with fucking zip ties. Yeah, Zero. zip ties and guns, and then all of a sudden <laughs> they're and, running the country. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. There is that. <sighs> yeah, and the my last thing uh, is the, the self-flagellation that Moore ends on. He says, I do know that when a man tells us he was in a, such a desperate, self-destructive place for so long, we owe it to him. And to ask ourselves, and to ourselves to ask, were we so deceived that we couldn't help him? Or did we turn our attention away to the leader of a major evangelical institution with untold wealth and influence as long as he was succeeding? Mm-hmm. If the latter, the problem isn't Jerry Falwell Jr.'s hypocrisy. The problem is us. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, it's called this, codependence. Like, like <laughs> yeah, the listeners can hear my eyes rolling, I think. Um, <laughs> It's almost like Russell Moore had a great end. Like, the problem isn't Jerry Falwell. The problem is us. That's a great conclusion to an article. Yeah, now, how do I get there? Yeah, like, right. And and it just, I it almost paints Jerry Falwell Jr. as this victim. And he, I, again, I can have empathy for the expectations and stuff that get sure. placed onto someone whose mm-hmm. dad is powerful or whose family. Even I'll speak to my own experience. When I was called to ministry, there were, they were unspoken too. It wasn't even like my family put pressure on me. It might have just been perceived by me. But there is a pressure to act and behave in a certain way and that maybe you don't want to. So I, I can have a certain amount of empty, empathy for that in a vacuum. But it's you were a willing participant in all of this. You could have walked away. You were wealthy enough to walk away at any time. And you could have lived your life in the Blue Ridge Mountains and had your little thruple and no one would have said anything. You know? <laughs> and gone to Miami whenever you wanted. Yeah. and But you got off on the power. And so you're not a victim anymore. And this kind of goes to, the, I think, evangelicals and conservatives generally view any kind of accountability as persecution as persecution or unfair like even jerry 
Falwell Jr. is like, they only went after me because I supported Trump. Like I've, I'm being persecuted. I'm being attacked. I'm being singled out. And mm-hmm. it's, no, you're just being held accountable for your actions. And in a just society, you shouldn't be the leader of a university. In a just society, you shouldn't be able to fine students. Your salary was paid for partially by students that were fined, I think, $250 for drinking or maybe even being at a place that served alcohol, I think. I just I need you guys to know that I would have stood on his steps drinking and just had $250 ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding, guys. I don't have a problem I mean, at he, all, so I'm he, not a rebel. Yeah. Yeah, and he would probably fine you and then bum a beer off of you. Like, I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, if, so if you're in a I'm the society, you don't get away with that <laughs> and not have any accountability. And so it's, it is just interesting. I feel like the whole evangelicalism generally just talks out of both sides of its mouth when it's like, we want accountability, we want law and order, but, we want all of that stuff. We want that for everybody else. But the piece of accountability is apology. Mm-hmm. And I did not and still have not heard Jerry Falwell do anything other than, or Jerry Falwell Jr., throw people under the bus and say, it's not my fault. My dad was too nice to me, but uh, it's not my fault. And there's no sense of any sort of apology. And I think that's the thing that makes me so angry with Mark Driscoll. There's lots of things. That's not the thing. That's one Mm -hmm. of the things that makes me really angry about all these people is there is no accountability that's taught within even evangelical spaces is usually involves apology and contrition. And this is not who I am. This is not, I want you to hear that this man openly said, this is who I am. And I told you who I was. <laughs> that's like the opposite of an and that's apology. on you. And then people said, Oh yeah, that is on us. Like, like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. And just to try to tie these couple of different types of conversations we've had together. Is this any sort of standard and I that you have experienced? Because I think that this story, even though it is about someone who was a business leader and not a not a pastoral figure, like the Vanity Fair article definitely highlights that his brother who is the pastor couldn't be reached for a comment or didn't want to comment. And this isn't really a religious story, even though it still is because he still wielded religious power. Is this any, I, I think that the, my read on it as someone who did, who's never had a position as like a, as a pastor or anything like that, is that when you've accumulated some, a certain level of power or influence, you do escape that accountability on a sort of local pastoral level of someone that isn't tied into this. What is your read on how he is judged and how his moral character is per- is perceived and discussed versus how another person, whether they're a pastor or a different type of religious leader, would have been judged and discussed at this level or in this type of discussion? I think that the churches I've been in, and I've been in non-denominational churches, I've been in conservative denominations, I've served in United Methodist churches, almost across the board, in the spaces I've been in. This isn't every church, this is just the, I feel like I have a large enough sample size to be able to make a certain amount of statement. This is a peer-reviewed statement. (laughs) What's about to be peer-reviewed. 
is that Christianity in the United States or ministry in the United States rewards results and mm. will make excuses for results more so than character. There will be pastors of very large churches that it is just known that they are assholes. I know of pastors of large churches that are very kind publicly, but privately have thrown staff members against walls, have been physically violent, have said things and threatened things that I'm not going to go into super detail, but it's just like mm -hmm. I, I know pastors that have pastors have lied to me about finances before and lied openly to board members before, but they get results. And so accountability just is always out of reach unless it is a massive breach that's illegal or or it is something that has to do with something that is this is something Brad Onishi brought up in his podcast, Straight White American Jesus, or if it's something emasculating. Like mm. that's why Jerry Falwell Jr., if he had been the one sleeping around, like mm -hmm. that's a masculine sin. Whereas, oh, you were watching your wife and another guy. Are you gay? Well, I, I think that kind of mm. that's an emasculating kind of sin. And so in this in their context, I don't have a judgment about it myself, but it's just in that context. So the type of sin will do it. But really, when it comes down to it, if you're pulling in money, you're pulling in numbers, you're not doing anything super illegal there. You will escape a lot of accountability in many spaces. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. I and it drove me nuts. It's yeah. another reason why I left, but it's not the main reason. But it's just one reason where it's just like I feel like this is just as unethical as any, and maybe more unethical as both the corporate spaces I've been in. I did not see the level of malfeasance <laughs> that I've seen in some churches. <laughs> maybe that is where the hypocrisy comes in, because I don't walk into a corporate space thinking that you're going to help craft me into a better human necessarily. Uh, unless it's an Apple store and that's because I have a problem and I'm part of the cult. But when you walk <laughs> into a religious institution, whether you are saying it or not, there is a certain assumption that you are going to help me be better at being me um, and whatever that might look like and that there's some authority around that. And I have been in spaces where very toxic behavior, very, that would never stand in a corporate setting, mm. ever stand. You get fired right away. Right away. Is left to go on because, well, person, because they're a Christian or they're a Christian leader or whatever it might be. And so mm. I think it, it, the sad part is it's not surprising. And I think, truthfully... I hate to admit that you're right, Justin. Had it been him having an affair, it, he would be easily welcomed back in. Because mm -hmm. it's really hard and probably that we'd be hearing the story about the woman who tempted him away. And mm -hmm. he had daddy issues. And then look at how stern his mom was. And of course, he's going to find he's going to have difficulty with relationships with women. It's and all his this, wife was gaining weight. Of course, now. And she's got a... <laughs> exercise bike in the way <laughs> just like all of this mm -hmm. stuff i think it's on a macro level that's happening on a micro level i think we we see this all the time but i also think there is a little bit again the generous read that i had of it we do ask people to sit on a pedestal and then when they do they act like people 
And I think it's like, what voices are we actually listening to? I find it very fascinating. You don't often hear about, uh, and it does happen, but not as much, female clergy who are inappropriate, all this sort of stuff. It's fascinating to me, or black pastor or female pastors. It's just not the same. There's this really interesting, what is it about these male dominant folks that we just keep making excuses for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The problem isn't us, isn't them. It's <laughs> us. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the problem, <laughs> problem is male pastors. The problem is us. <laughs> yeah, I think, Sarah, you... And I'm glad you said that, because I, when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, all the problematic pastors I know are white there, and male. <laughs> there are some problematic. Don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there are, but it's just... It, and again, it's just part of the, just the fact that most clergy are white and male in this country, too. Mm-hmm. It could just be the, the sample that we're pulling from. But there is a, just a certain amount of, yeah, generosity in some ways of, yeah, he gets results and boys will be boys. And it's unfortunate. And I think the corporate world has, for the most part, obviously there's impropriety, but there's human resource departments. There are ways to appeal, whereas mm-hmm. in church spaces, there is no safety net in a lot of times. And if you get a reputation as someone who tattles on the senior pastor... You're the problem, not the pastor. You're the problem. You're going to be out of a job. Yeah. There's, I used to watch a lot of this, a lot of Simpsons, and there's this one episode where Bart does something bad and Milhouse tattles on him because the pastor was like threatening them with hellfire, basically. And he's like, Milhouse says, it was Bart. And then he gets in trouble, and then the pastor comes back and grabs him and says, you too, snitchy. (laughs) 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 And that's like very much how power is wielded in a lot of those spaces, but in a, a very small example there. Yep. This has been a really fascinating conversation. It's so fun conversation. to just chat about it, guys. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. And to hear about this new project that you both have embarked on, as well as just talk through this sort of more topical thing and get your read on it as people who've had religious leadership roles. So thank you both for joining me. Where can people find your podcast and where can they find anything else you're up to online? Yeah, you can find our podcast with the Irreverent Media Group. You can actually just go to irreverent.fm and find our podcasts or you can go on all of the podcast ways to find podcasts, some of which are currently lost favor, but you can find all kinds of different places you can find. And it's Rev covery it's i think instead of recovery rev covery and then you can find us on social media at red covery room and the reason that we do that is that we are really hoping to build community around this we're beginning with a podcast and hoping to end with community and cohorts and that kind of thing you can find my work at rev you can find me on all social media platforms as Rev Sarah Heath. If you find me on Twitter, congratulations, because <laughs> I'm barely ever on there. But <laughs> you two keep me up to date on all the things that happen on Twitter. Yeah, all the sh- the show stuff that Sarah said is, is there and available. I'm also, I also host, uh, co-host another show on 
the Irreverent Media Group, Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, where it's part drunk history, but it's Sunday school. And (laughs) and we have a good time with it. So you can check that out. I host that with Tori Williams Douglas. Also, I'm on the socials at Justin D. Gentry or Justin dot Gentry. I'm on there somewhere. I I got my socials at different phases of life, folks. I didn't get them all (laughs) at once. And so the usernames are different. I apologize profusely. No, just keep it spicy. Yeah, uh, and you can up. find me online, justingentry.online. I'm actually in the process of rebuilding my website, so it may Same. not be up right now, but it will be up uh, shortly. Great. I will say I've got two other podcasts on our network. One mm-hmm. that's been on hiatus and will be coming back called Making Spaces, which is this idea of how do we make space for ourselves and others, both literally and figuratively, because as well as being a pastor, I'm also a designer, which is weird, I know. And then the other one is Your Favorite Ants, which is li- literally the silliest yet most profound thing I do every week, which is where I gather with Kevin Garcia, another creator, content creator within Irreverent Media Group. And they and I sit around and we we usually have a beverage or two. We talk about things that are happening in media and then we give you advice that you may or may not want. And people <laughs> join us live every week. Yeah, it's great. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you both you. for joining me and definitely check out both of their other projects as well. Thank you both. Thanks. Oh, thank you. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.